share just a couple notes before I launch into this sermon. One is, there's interesting thinking out there on the distinction between hope and optimism, and I strongly encourage you to go look that up, but just like Mary, I'm going to use them more or less interchangeably today. And also, I just want to share of all of, uh, of Adam's five points, his five smooth stones, this one is the toughest for me. Ultimate optimism. Really? That's why I had to give it a question mark. But we'll see how I do. See how, what you think when you follow along the journey that he took me on. And I think that World AIDS Day is a particularly apt day to consider this question. If you are old enough to remember the first headlines about a new mysterious disease, you probably remember the plummeting feeling. It was at first called a, quote, gay cancer. But it lacked cancer's one saving grace, that it is not contagious. This new scourge was contagious. At first, we thought that it might even spread through sweat, in other words, through touch, a misconception that continued too long, partly because of our squeamishness about naming the actual bodily fluids that can carry the virus. It was, apparently, invariably fatal. It afflicted young people more than old people. It is hard to even remember, especially for those who were going to many funerals a month of their friends, the people with whom, as the artist David Hockney said, one expected to grow old together. And as I shared at the, um, our time of caring and sharing, a generation later, AIDS has killed 35 million people worldwide. It's such a grim toll, it's such an unimaginable number that in some sense, the only way that we could spend the next 20 minutes that would do it any justice would be to having allowed. But 38 million people live with HIV now. This is not only a miracle from the point of view of the early 80s. They and those who might still be exposed cannot afford for us to wallow in grief. They need us to summon our resources. So James Luther Adams urges us to look toward the ultimate victory. Will that victory come about? He doesn't say. Rather, he reminds us that there is a struggle in which we must take sides and in which we have the resources. We have the resources to work toward the victory of justice. I think a reason that I find the question of optimism, the question of hope, so difficult is that my mind goes to the far future. Can somebody promise us it will be okay? It's always wise to think long term, but I think when it comes to the question of hope, we can keep the telescope to our eyes so much that we don't even see what's right here at our feet. We don't see what's around us. And Although Adams is right that the short term may look pretty hopeless, paradoxically, what lies before us, right around us, can be reason for hope. And that is because what is right around us is choice. 
reading this passage of his and trying to decide what of it to share, I came across that word a couple times, optative, and my eyes kind of glazed over at a long Latinate word whose meaning I wasn't sure of. But I'm glad I took a moment to look it up because as I said, it, it simply means expressing hope, a desire, or a wish. And its origin is, as you imagine, the word for choice, opt or option being more familiar words, choice. To take the optative point of view, to speak in the optative mood means to recognize that we have choices. And to know that one has choices is the difference between optimism and despair. So let me share another thinker who helps um, me elucidate how that might be. Philosophy can float very high above the nitty and gritty of our dilemmas. Even ethics, the field of philosophy that's specifically about human actions, human decisions, sometimes seems so far removed from our actual dilemmas and decisions that it, it just seems to belong in the ivory tower and not in our day-to-day -day living. But one of our most prophetic voices in that field is that of Martha Nussbaum, whose career as a scholar of ethics has drawn frequently on ancient literature She's fascinated by what she finds there in, in um, literature's accounts of tragic dilemmas, choices in which there is no good option, no morally acceptable option, which means, in other words, to the kinds of choices we face all the time. Do we purchase goods that we are pretty sure were produced in exploitative situations <clears throat> or do we refrain, thus depriving the workers of even the scrap of income they have? What is the right answer there? Is there a good answer? Do we protect already stressed habitat or expand housing for people in need? Do we give money to a loved one who is in the grip of addiction, knowing that they need it for food and shelter? and knowing they may use it to spiral more deeply into their prison. It's hard to be optimistic in the face of such choices precisely because there is no good option. So here's how Nussbaum explains that. I have written a lot about tragic dilemmas, she writes, <clears throat> and it is my position that one may make the decision that is best, all things considered, the right decision in that sense, and still not be free of serious wrongdoing. Agamemnon made the right decision when he chose to sacrifice his daughter because the only alternative was that the gods would kill the entire army and the daughter as well. Still, it was a horrible, wrongful act. And his outcry, which of these is without evils, is appropriate. Now, where I find Nussbaum such a refreshing ethicist is that instead of just regarding these conflicts as inevitable, okay, they're tragic choices, there's no good choice, she observes that often, and here's her words, such conflicts are caused by defective political and social arrangements. Thus, when women have to choose between attending appropriately to their children and doing a good job at work, these constant everyday dilemmas are often caused by bad workplace arrangements, which, for example, schedule department meetings after the pickup time of childcare centers. 
Similarly, when Arjuna in the Mahabharata finds that in order to do his duty in the army, he has to try to kill his kinsmen, the problem is caused by the horrible circumstances that led to civil war. And such dilemmas are ubiquitous there, as tragic authors in many traditions have seen. Similarly, again, when a poor parent in a developing country finds that she has to keep her child out of school in order to put that child into the workforce, earning money essential if the family is to survive, the problem lies not with the parent, but with defective political and economic arrangements that force the terrible choice. This, I think, is where a great modern ethicist meets James Luther Adams. How might we expand the choices available to us? And I'd like to share two stories from our own time, real stories of people acting to fix these sorts of defects so that the terrible choice is no longer forced. One comes our way from the riveting book on, our, on the other side of freedom by DeRay McKesson. McKesson was a teacher and administrator in the Minneapolis public schools when in the wake of Michael Brown's death at the hands of a police officer, he felt the need to go to Ferguson near St. Louis. He went for just a couple days and then he said he needed a bit of a leave from work and then he spent some time going back and forth the nine hours between the St. Louis area and the Twin Cities until he finally left his job and became a full-time activist in Ferguson. He's since become one of our country's leading activists, notably in Baltimore, where he grew up, and via Campaign Zero, Black Lives Matter, and the podcast he hosts, Pod Save the People. It's been highly recommended to me, by the way. When I'm done with his book, I'll go on to the podcast. The subtitle of this book is The Case for Hope. And McKesson argues for hope from a place of great authority, the authority conferred by oppression. He is among the people who were not meant to survive. So I will give just one of his many examples of the source from which he believes hope springs. For much of our country, especially, but not only, white people, the police are seen as the go-to solution in times of community conflict. If there's a problem in the neighborhood, call the cops. If we can't call the cops, what recourse do we have against people who threaten a community's well-being? Now, the problem is that police departments often have a particular narrow way of addressing conflict, what McKesson calls negative power. And these are his words, seizing, detaining, arresting, imprisoning, and killing, means that are expressly for destruction and not for building. Thus, the forced choice is either tolerate the abuse that is committed by police, especially if one has a police force that's particularly prone to such violent disorder. Now one way to, and I put quotes around the word, resolve that dilemma is to pretend the abuse doesn't exist. Just call the cops and imagine that all will be well. Something a vast majority of white people probably do still, the most uh, recent 
poll I know of is in 2014 when only 34% of white US Americans believed the police used lethal force unnecessarily. But ignoring it is of course no resolution at all. Nor is the solution, again in quotes, sought by those protected by sufficient income and the right race and ethnicity of sheltering in segregated, safe communities and leaving those who cannot escape police violence to their fate. Thus, we are left with a tragic dilemma. What are, what are we to do when there is something threatening the community? Well, as Nussbaum suggests, the forced choice, the tragic dilemma, dissolves when we address the defects in the wider context. McKesson is one of several people um, <clears throat> that includes a data scientist from the Bay Area who called up the Black Lives Matter folk and said, how can I help? Uh, he has, they have a project called Mapping Police Violence, which tries to address these wider contexts this uh, wider context by compiling information that was simply invisible, read, deliberately hidden before. Statistics about violence committed by police. Police departments are the ones who report it. They don't have to report it. And lo and behold, you get interesting things like there was no lethal force used by any police, in, police per officer in Florida for over 10 years. I mean, sadly not true. <clears throat> so the Mapping Police Violence team set about finding this information through multiple channels, cross-checking it, and there is now a considerable database of information. And with these statistics in hand, we can discover new solutions. For example, some police departments have use of force policies that require officers to de-escalate situations, to exhaust other reasonable means before resorting to lethal weapons, and when they do have to use force, then a threat, such as an officer's pointing their gun at someone. Other departments have use of force policies that explicitly instruct officers, this is a quote from the San Jose Manual, there is no requirement that you use a lesser intrusive force option before progressing to a more intrusive one. The difference is one of life and death. Departments that had the most restrictive use of force policies, McKesson writes, were 72% less likely to kill people than those with the least restrictive policies. So this information takes a dilemma and shows that it's arisen, well, from other choices that were made. Deadly policies that were put in place instead of approaches that would open up possibilities and address conflicts in ways that could save communities from violence. And these deadly policies just bring more destruction upon the communities that ask the department for help. And the fact that this dilemma came our way because of choices that were made means that we can make different choices to undo it. McKesson writes, as gut-wrenching as it is to know the numbers, as infuriating as it is to read policies and contracts that enable brutality, I remain hopeful. I am hopeful because the choices that were made, the choices that resulted in our current state of affairs are becoming clearer and clearer. The problem with the police isn't hidden. 
we can make a series of different choices. And so the question becomes, before us becomes, as he poses it, will we? Not, is there any reason for hope? But will we use the optative voice? Will we exercise our choices so that we create the future we hope for? We, we, we sang earlier of what might bloom where today we plant the seed. Just as people were planting seeds decades and hundreds of years before that have led to the good things in our lives. What might we plant that will enable people still to come to have better choices? So that is my first story from our time. And the second one is AIDS. When I went to India and Nepal as a college student in 1988, I'm afraid that US Americans were seen as the source of this problem. We were looked on a bit askance, just as despised populations within the United States were seen as the source of AIDS in our country. So when we went to these other countries, were we seen as the source of AIDS for them? When I was walking as a student in Kathmandu and turned into a wide street and saw emblazoned across the street uh, on a banner above street level, World AIDS Day, December 1st, 1988. It was, um, it was a stunning sight. For the first several years after the emergence of AIDS, it seemed that only this brutal forced choice would remain in place. It seemed that for gay and bisexual men, even to engage in a sexual relationship was to play Russian roulette, a terrible forced choice. Imagine coming into one's 20s and choosing between celibacy or death. With the affected populations being largely gay people, intravenous drug users, and sex workers, HIV was all but synonymous with stigma. These were people whom our society made pariahs even before the disease and then seized upon the disease as an excuse to continue to make pariahs. And all of it added up to a forced choice. Risk dying untreated and in silence or face the stigma of a diagnosis. What started to change, what brought a breakthrough was our willingness to address and seek to end the stigma. Thus, a turning point was the creation of ACT UP, whose slogan, silence equals death, is a good watchword for any stigma. Now, we can't control everything, and a disease is a perfect example. Some terrible choices, tragic choices, are forced upon us. A new virus evolves, and suddenly we have to make difficult choices that we've never had to make before. That is not a problem of our creation. But James Luther Adams points us towards two things over which we do have control, our choices and our resources. It took too long, far too long, to marshal the resources of humanity to defeat HIV. We have resources of money and of knowledge, great laboratories, storehouses of human ingenuity, 
and the money to fund them. But at first, and for a long time, we were missing one crucial ingredient, will. Our will was sapped by our cultural detestation for the people most affected. It was not until the disease had other faces that the story began to change. Rock Hudson, not only a celebrity, but a friend of the first family, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, was one of the first well-known people to confront the stigma by saying publicly that what was killing him was AIDS. A child, Ryan White, became another face of the illness. And then famous and respected people, such as Diana, Princess of Wales, televised themselves taking the hands of dying men and holding AIDS-afflicted babies and thus gave the lie to the idea that even to touch an HIV-infected person was deadly. Now, I describe this, and maybe you, like me, feel your hope deflate at the idea that such turning points should even have been needed. But I bring them up because in those turning points, we see our choices. We were not losing to HIV and AIDS because it was an implacable foe. It was, it was a very difficult foe, and we have not figured it all out yet. But that's not why we were losing. We were losing because we had not chosen to fight. And when we made a different choice, we began to win. That is why people can now grow to be old with HIV in their system. Here's something more about choices. From the World Health Organization, <clears throat> They've established 90-90-90 guidelines to be accomplished by this coming year, 2020. Identify 90% of the people who are positive, treat 90% of those, and bring 90% of those treated to non-detectability of viral load, in other words, making them non-infectious. Public health uh, workers who look at these guidelines say, without a doubt, it's the attainment of the initial 90% goal that is by far the most difficult. The most difficult is to identify who has HIV. What I was seeing in Nepal, what surprised and heartened me before I knew there was gonna be any such thing as a World AIDS Day, that, that very first one, was the blow against the stigma to see the word AIDS unashamedly emblazoned across a city street. Later I learned that coincidentally that was the year of the first reported case of HIV in Nepal. Of course we don't know what has happened to that person in the subsequent 31 years. But we know this. The chances that they are alive and doing well are vastly increased by the fact that they discovered their diagnosis, that they overcame the stigma enough to discover what was happening to them and seek help. Now, it's easy to look upon human nature and history, both recent and ancient, and wonder, will we draw upon all these resources that we have? the things we know how to do and the things we can't even yet imagine. Whether we will be joined by enough people to make the difference.
Can we be sure that enough people will join us in the fight for justice to tip the balance? No, we can't be sure. But we can know where we want to cast our lot. What Adams, what Nussbaum, what McKesson are all saying to us, what these stories from our own time are saying to us is, is hope is not something that one just has or doesn't have, that descends upon us or does not. It's in our choices, it's in what we do. So perhaps this is why we do better to follow the activists than the theorists. Because one thing is certain, as DeRay McKesson says, hope is not magic. Hope is work. Let's get to the work. Now let us give an